All right, I want to welcome on my next guest. We got Seahawks legend three. I've got this written down because I got a lot here. We got the Steve Largent Award winner, the 93 Joe Green Great Performance Award winner, three-time Pro Bowler, two-time first-team All-Pro, a legendary linebacker, Mr. Chad Brown. Chad, is everything going for you? Everything is going fantastically. I guess as good as it can be in this such a coming off such a crazy year. But uh, yes, me and mine are happy and healthy. Hopefully, same for you and yours. Yeah, you can't complain. Can't complain. Washington didn't win a playoff game. They normally don't, so it's not a really different year. So it's can't can't complain. But for the so the season, we got one more game. Uh, according to this before the Super Bowl, uh, I, me I personally I didn't think the season was going to finish. I thought the cases would spike and they were just going to scrap it. Somehow they put it all together, got it all under control, and we have a Super Bowl this week. How do you think the season's gone? Uh, I like you had my doubts about the season. You know, uh, I thought at some point, you know, they were going to have to either kind of can the season or move to a bubble like the NBA did. I thought the cases would be so bad. Now here in Denver, I, I live in Denver. Um, they had to go into a game without a quarterback. So now, you know, it wasn't a whole lot made of that because they weren't a really good team. They weren't a playoff team. So there were some things that uh, maybe were not necessarily fair from a competitive nature uh, that had to happen because of COVID. But at the same time, to be where we are, not miss a week of football, not essentially miss a game, Games got rescheduled, but no games were missed. Uh, we are here, and the two teams who a lot of folks predicted would be here are here. So uh, crazy season, lots of weird things happening. But in the end, I think the best football uh, won. Interesting, interesting. What was your main take, outside of all the craziness with the COVID this season, what was your main takeaway, something that kind of caught your attention, like, wow, I didn't see that coming? I think, well, I won't say I was surprised, but I think good coaches, whether it's college football or the NFL, found ways to, to keep going. Um, you know, Alabama was not uh, affected by COVID in the same way that other teams were. I wonder why. They're a great program. They're, they have players with discipline and, and went about and practiced the proper protocols and all those kinds of things. Uh, same in the NFL. Um, Kansas City, obviously, it, it was looking to repeat, had a you know very strong incentive to do things the right way. Um, Tampa Bay, same kind of thing. So uh, I, I think the, the, the fact that the coaches who are the best on the field coaches also took care of the COVID stuff, which in some ways became an on the field issue, uh, making sure that their guys were adhering to protocols, that they were following the rules, that they were wearing their masks, all those kinds of things. The more detailed you were as a coach, the better culture you built as a coach, it showed up not just on the field, but with COVID as well. Then you you do radio broadcasts for the game, right? I'm pretty sure I've heard you on Westwood One. I've done Westwood One, but I've also do a lot of Compass Media as well. Oh, cool. So how did that work this season for you? You know, this was an interesting season. Uh, we did not have spotters or stats people in the booth. So it kind of brought me back to doing some of my uh, first broadcasting opportunities, which were high school games, where you don't have a spotter. You don't have anybody in the booth. So your ability as a broadcaster to juggle all those tasks became critically important. So we were allowed to go on site, but we were only allowed to have three people in the booth, play-by-play, -play, color guy, and an engineer, and that was it. Occasionally, we got a fourth person. We were allowed to have a producer. So those really tight constraints, um, in the end, I think in the beginning, affected some of the broadcast, but in the end, it made all of us better broadcasters because we had to juggle stats and keep those in our heads and not just rely on somebody else to keep feeding us statistical information. Or, you know, I'm helping the play-by-play -play guy 
figure out who was a receiver who just caught this pass. Now, <laughs> working in the NFL game, obviously a lot easier because we're so familiar with NFL players, but I did NFL and college games this year. So bouncing back and forth and doing a uh, Louisville, Florida State game, teams that I haven't called a game for ever, my first time calling either one of those teams, um, you know, trying to do that with the limited personnel we had was certainly tricky. But in the end, I think, like I said, I think we're all better for that. Were there a lot of stadium personnel there? Or do you have to lock up after the game was over? <laughs> you know, uh, I have to say everyone, everywhere I went, excuse me, did a fantastic job. Um, whether it was NFL, whether it was college, all the protocols weren't exactly the same everywhere we went. Um, obviously, some places were more stringent than others. Um, but everyone had a plan in place, and they were trying their best to execute the plan. And the stadium personnel were always incredibly helpful in that. And I think it was a bit odd for them as well, you know, used to having 60 or 70,000 people in the seats. Now maybe there's a couple of hundred friends and family kind of thing, but from a media perspective, um, they were as, as helpful as they have ever been. And it was a, it was great to see, you know, that because things were crazy, not everything became crazy. I know I was talking to, uh, I don't know if you know, Dan Helley, who's with the NFL Network. Yes. He, I think he got the last minute call earlier in the season when Washington played Detroit and he got it like three days in advance and he had to kind of scramble to get a test and everything. Were yours, when you, were your games more set out that you had more time to kind of get everything handled and then to get where you needed to go? We kind of scheduled the first month of the season figuring both college and NFL will make it through the first month. That was the hope of, <laughs> wow. of the executive producer wow. with Compass. There wasn't a whole lot of <laughs> confidence. Yeah and how it was all going to break down. And then after that, it literally became a week by week basis. So there were a couple of times where I had either just finished calling a game or I was in the middle of calling a game. And, you know, at halftime, I look at my phone and it's like, oh, do you want to do KC Tampa Bay next week? Yes, I do. Okay. So, you know, cause it was obviously, you know, games were being scheduled and, and, and rescheduled uh, in college football teams were canceling some games. Um, and then we were dealing with within our own media circle, uh, you know, some, some guys were getting COVID and coming down with that. So there's a lot of juggling yeah. of schedules and games to make it all happen. But again, uh, I called 13 games this year. Um, so happy and, and blessed to be able to do that many, uh, most of them in the NFL. And like I said, the NFL completed their season. So, you know, here we are the last week of the season in the chance to reflect back on what could have been a no season, but happy yeah. it ended up being what it was. By the 12th game, when the person was giving you the test, you're like, all right, I've done it before. You can just do it. I know yeah. what's going on here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. The first time was I got it because when I moved into um, my what was my roommates in August, before I moved in, the kid tested positive and we all had to get it and they gave it to me. And they were like, are you ready? I'm like, not really. And they just kind of just went right up there. I'm like, this is brutal. This is unbelievable. <laughs> but, and then, so for, for Denver, you spoke about the Broncos. They obviously had um, Kendall Hinton suited up. It was not the prettiest game. Um, what did you think of their season? Uh, you know, a struggle for the Broncos, and but it went as I expected. They have not been very talented in, in a while. Um, you know, I think Drew Locke has a chance to be a pretty good quarterback, but I think uh, this year he was focused far too often on trying to be great instead of trying to be good. And most of his mistakes, most of his interceptions, he led the league in interceptions, had 11 straight games with a turnover, whether it was an interception or a fumble, uh, was because he was trying to do too much. And, uh, you know, I understand the, the thought as a player, you're competitive, but as a quarterback, you know, your job is to put other people in positions to be successful. Your job is to make sure that you don't put your defense in a bad spot. 
Um, so a, a big learning curve for Drew Locke. We saw just this week that the new general manager for the Broncos, George Payton, went after Matthew Stafford. So that indicates that he's not necessarily happy about Drew Locke moving forward. So we'll see how that quarterback position plays out. But they've got a lot of other issues as well. You know, Vaughn Miller uh, with some legal trouble. We don't even know what's going on. Some, some stuff going on. We don't even know what's going on with that. Yeah, <laughs> some legal trouble yeah. with, with Vaughn Miller. Obviously, he's got uh, an incredibly high salary cap number. Oh, yeah. Coming off a injury year and a couple of years of limited production. What do they do with him? They've got a cornerback position where I don't think they have any idea who's going to be the starter, much less the top three guys next year. So there's a lot of different issues they need to take care of. But first and foremost, if I'm George Payton, I've got to figure out what I want to do at the quarterback position. Do I move on and try to bring a veteran competition guy in who can compete with Drew Locke and perhaps uh, if he loses a job, become kind of that mentor, that consigliere kind of role, that Josh McCown kind of role? Or they just stand pat with Drew Locke and really just try to build up the rest of the team while, you know, hoping to either get a free agent quarterback next year or find one in the draft next year. So I want to get into the, the, to, uh, the three teams you played for their seasons before we could get into your career. So Steelers obviously drafted by the Steelers second round, um, had an incredible start. Then a team with no name kind of threw everything out of whack. What was your thoughts on their season? Uh, well, you know, to win 11 in a row was certainly impressive, yeah. but they were the worst 11-0 team I had ever seen. <laughs> and the cracks and the holes were out there. If you weren't wearing black and gold glasses and looking at it, the football games objectively, yeah. it was clear that they had some issues. And once they became truly one-dimensional, uh, it became so easy to defend them. And so their tailspin at the end of the season uh, was not a surprise for me. It had been coming for at least a month while they were still winning. Uh, but at some point, you put enough bad football on tape, uh, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. The defensive coordinators, they spend 100 hours a week looking at tape. They're going to figure out the ways to put you in positions where you're not comfortable or force you to do things you're not very good at. And that's what happened to the Steelers season. So the defense was amazing to start the year. And then you lost, pretty sure you lost Devin Bush that was relatively yes. early. And then they lost Bud Dupree. Um, do you think Bud Dupree comes back? I know he's a free agent. Uh, hopefully it doesn't affect his, uh, his, his incoming contract. What do you think the defense will be just as good next year? You know, I'm not exactly sure who they have behind Bud Dupree. I think one uh, of the, Spillane. Spillane. Yes, yes. I think one of the luxuries of being the Pittsburgh Steelers is, at least defensively, the uh, scheme, you know, tweaked a little bit from, from time to time. Um, now with Keith Butler being the defensive coordinator. But in the end, it's the same scheme they've been running for almost 30 years. So the physical prerequisites and the scouting for players in that defense hasn't changed in a long time. So whether it's Bud Dupree maybe moving on in free agency or it's Chad Brown moving on in free agency or Kevin Green or Greg Lloyd or Joey Porter or Clark Higgins or um, J uh, Jason Gilden, it's a long list of guys, but they've always found somebody to step back in and replace them. So um, I'm assuming the Steelers being the Steelers, they have scouted guys with the anticipation of Bud Dupree uh, possibly leaving, and they've got someone else to step up. Um, so the, the, the linebackers in Pittsburgh obviously are such an established tradition. I think the scouting for, department for those guys knows exactly what they're looking for and how to find that next guy. You think we've seen the last of Juju in a Steelers uniform? Uh, maybe so, you know, maybe so. Um, he had, he's kind of tailed off a little bit. He was, you know, one of the brightest uh, young receivers in the game. 
uh, kind of tailed off a little bit. And now we're seeing some of the, you know, uh, lack of maturity showing up in some ways. And um, I'm not sure if Mike Tomlin, um, we saw him get rid of Le'Veon Bell. We've seen him trying to eliminate distractions. Uh, maybe Juju is the, the next step in that process. Interesting. Interesting. And so going over to Seattle, obviously spent the bulk of your career there. Came, it came out of the gates uh, storming. The defense wasn't really playing up to par. Then the defense sort of caught up. The offense sort of tailed out. What, what about them? I, were you surprised they lost to the Rams? I was. I was particularly, you know, what was going on with the Rams quarterback situation. But again, you want to find a way to play your best football late in the season and going into the playoffs. And Seattle was kind of reeling offensively. Uh, they never really put together a fully complete game. I don't think the entire season is either one side of the ball or the other. They couldn't get both sides to play well. And to see Russell Wilson after he was on to such a hot start, you know, being talked about in the MVP conversation, it was, you know, odd to see him struggle with just some of the things that maybe a month or six weeks before he had handled no problem. Um, so I think there was a regression of his play. Uh, clearly the play calling didn't meet what they had on the field. That's why there's a new coordinator in Seattle now. Pete Carroll's not going to allow that to stick around very long if you're not getting it done. Um, and then defensively, uh, tip of the cap to, to Ken Norton and to Pete Carroll as well. Keep chopping wood. Keep your head down. You were a historically, not just a bad defense for this season, a historically bad defense. Then you managed to turn it around. You got yeah. Jamal Adams back. You got Carlos Dunlap and trade. He took a couple weeks to get going. Then he yeah. started producing in the pass rush game. You, you, you changed your defense, um, but you made them a much better defense, much more opportunistic. So uh, it'll be a very interesting offseason for Seattle. You know, can they maintain what they had going defensively? Yeah. They try to add more pass rush kind of elements to the defense because you need more than just those two guys. And then offensively, you know, how do you maximize Russell Wilson and DK Metcalf and have other players fill roles? When you think about, say, the Kansas City Chiefs, they've got multiple weapons offensively. Yeah. It makes it very difficult to take away just Tyreek Hill or just take away Travis Kelsey. The Seahawks need to spend an offseason with really developing those other weapons so teams can't just decide we're going to take away DK Metcalf and shut your offense down. Where does Bobby Wagner rank on your all-time great Seahawks linebacker list? Uh, Bobby's uh, towards the top, for sure. Uh, remarkable consistency, uh, a student of the game, great feel for the game. Um, I, there's so much to like about him, whether it's in the run game, whether it's in coverage or getting after the quarterback. Uh, tremendous respect for, for Bobby and what he's been able to accomplish. Um, he is on a Hall of Fame track yeah. at, at this point. You know, still needs, I think, a couple years to kind of solidify that. But if he can maintain his current level of play for another two years or so, uh, he's certainly in that conversation. Do you think there's any regret whatsoever for making the move for Jamal Adams? Um, I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I think they knew what they were getting uh, as far as kind of being a, a bit of a volatile personality. Um, now, at the same time, Pete Carroll, for a period of time, specialized in that. <laughs> you know, And I did a coaching internship with Seattle and that was the year after they lost the Super Bowl to the Patriots. So Marshawn was still there. Martellus Bennett was still there. Cliff Aver was still there. Um, uh, Earl Thomas was still there. Richard Sherman was still there. So uh, the personality uh, of the locker room and ability for the coaches to, 
you know, kind of tamp down some of the worst parts, but lift up the, the best parts of those more eccentric players' personalities, I don't think there's a better coach in the league uh, than Pete at getting that accomplished. Would you like to see one of those former, like, Legion of Boom, that era of Seattle defense guys maybe join as a position coach just to kind of, like, instill some new blood into the young guys? Uh, you know, there is a uh, major difference between being, being good at football and actually coaching football. <laughs> and um, particularly now with how much players – if you're a good player, Earl Thomas, Richard Sherman, to use yeah. some Legion of Boom guys – um, those guys are going to make over 50, 60, 70 million dollars in their career. You know, I know they love football, but do they want to show up at five o'clock and not leave until midnight? You know, that's a tough ask for a lot of people when they've got a huge nest egg to rely upon. Um, there's far more things uh, interesting in life than grinding and watching tape on how to figure out the Sean McVay offense. Well, the thing is, if you coach for the Seahawks, you get to figure out what kind of gum Pete Carroll likes to chew. So, that's kind um, of, yeah. I don't know. I can tell you that Pete uh, varies it. He's got a, you know, in the oh, coaching really? locker room, there are multiple large containers of gum. And uh, Pete, I think, will vary which pile he grabs out of. I hope somebody does a doctoral dissertation on that because that'd be fantastic. Um, so so then, and then finally, quickly getting into the Patriots. Um, Brady's obviously playing in the Super Bowl on Sunday night. Patriots season did go as planned. It was kind of up and down with Cam. Um, what do they do from here? Well, uh, I think the, you know, folks are saying uh, now because Tom's in the Super Bowl, maybe the Patriot way was all about Tom Brady. Um, I respectfully disagree. Um, I think it's about both those guys. Tom Brady ended up being the perfect conduit for Bill's version of the Patriot way. Um, so without Bill's vision of what it looks like, I'm not sure if Tom becomes that guy. Without Tom being the best player on the team, but also willing to be the perfect representation of the Patriot way that only lifts and, and amplifies Bill's message. How many all time goat type of players are willing to sit in the front row of the meeting room and get yelled at to be an example to the rest of the team? Tom was, and Bill was able to utilize that to, to create a, a, a environment of accountability of professionalism. If he's going to call out Tom Brady, I know he's definitely going to call out me. So um, I think Tom's, uh, Bill's got to find uh, someone else who can kind of become that example. Um, and, you know, the, the Patriot way certainly had a tremendous amount of success. And not all that success was just due to Tom Brady. Early on, they won some of those Super Bowls with defense. They won some of those Super Bowls being a running team, not just a passing team. And that team with Randy Moss and, and Wes Welker, uh, they did not win a Super Bowl, one of Tom's finest years. So I, I think, uh, again, the, the the fact that they're now separated, it's, it's easy to begin to poke holes. Uh, but I think we should also marvel that they spent as much time together as they did. And they produced a run that I'm not sure the NFL will ever see again. So I want, I want to get into your career, uh, career real quickly. How did you end up at the uh, Colorado? Uh, you know, I was recruited by all the West Coast schools and um, my dad really, really wanted me to leave the state of California. Um, I had some friends who weren't necessarily on the same path in life that I was. My dad wanted me to go away and grow up a bit. And in fact, during the recruiting process, the phone rang one night during dinner. Of course, this is an old school, so it was a phone was still hanging up on the wall. So my dad had <laughs> my parents still have one. My parents still have one. I don't know why they still. They still I'm like, you still pay for the landline? They're like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, my dad got up from the dinner table, answered the phone, and I hear him say, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, yep, yep, 
Yep. Yeah, like I said, Chad's leaving the state. Hangs the phone up, sits back down at the dinner table. Dad, who was that? Well, that was USC. Okay, well, apparently this Chad leaving the state thing has now become pretty serious. This is, <laughs> but in the end, um, well, while I had my fascination with some of those local schools in Southern California, Coach McCartney uh, was building something special at the University of Colorado. And they had gotten some of the best players in the state of California uh, the, the previous two years before I graduated. Uh, George Hemingway ended up being a fullback at Colorado, Eric Bieniemy. Uh, tailback uh, now, obviously a yeah. much talked about NFL possible head coach candidate. Better be soon. Yes. And then uh, also they were working on Darian Hagan, who was my class out of high school, but he was the number one athlete in the state of California. So I was like, you got the best running back in California two years in a row. You got possibly the best athlete in California considering you guys. I think something special is going on up in Boulder. So I was uh, happy to be a part of that. And when you think about your college experience, uh, I'm not sure if you could get more out of it than what I did. Uh, I got a job in my chosen profession, the NFL. I won a national championship. I won four big eight titles. Uh, I still live here in the state of Colorado. I met my wife at the uni at University of Colorado. I'm going to go apply. Kids, I'm going to go apply. Right. And both my kids graduated from the University oh, of Colorado. Cool. It's about as good of an experience yeah. as you could ever have. Absolutely no regrets about becoming a buff. That's awesome. So I got questions from some, some Buffs fans. Um, what was that Nebraska rivalry, rivalry like? Um, it was awesome. It was awesome. You know, because Colorado was kind of coming out of the, the bottom of the Big Eight, Coach Mack had to manufacture a rivalry. And so rather than, you know, pointing to Iowa State or somebody like that, you know, he pointed at the top of the Big Eight, Oklahoma and Nebraska, Nebraska specifically. So when the schedule came out, um, all buff schedules that were printed, Nebraska was printed in red letters. It was the only one that was presented in red letters. Coaches weren't allowed to drive red cars. Um, players, we couldn't wear red, the color red into the football facility. So some of it is just so silly, but I give a tremendous tip of the cap to Coach Mack because when you're trying to climb from the bottom of anything, you need to set your targets and your sights to the top. And that's exactly what he did. He pointed to Nebraska and said, we're going to build a program that's going to beat them. And not just once, we're going to continue to do this. And so him creating that rivalry made such a target for us to, to try to reach up to. And then for Nebraska, they obviously they were much slower to move on from, you know, CU being awful and putting up 70 points against us before I got there to, oh my gosh, they beat us. Now they beat us two years in a row. Maybe this is for real. Maybe these guys are going to be our rival. So it took a little bit of time for those Husker fans to recognize that we were serious about it. That's like a, one other Colorado question from here. I don't recall the play, but I'm sure you do. If, if I say the words Rocket, Ismail, Orange Bowl, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, so, um, you know, I, I was on the punt coverage team during that game. And on that punt return, which ended up being called back to uh, a clip call by the Notre Dame player and was rightly called by the officiating crew, um, I was the one player who actually hit Rocket and had a chance to, to tackle him. Um, yeah, I, I am you know, forever grateful that that flag was thrown. Um, otherwise that would have just, it would have crushed me. It would have absolutely crushed me to you know, have him slip through my fingers and literally the national championship slip through my fingers. Um, in my defense, 
I did uh, have shoulder surgery two days later. Uh, my, my left arm wasn't working as well as it should have been. Um, but obviously we decided to try to make it through the game, which I did, and I ended up playing pretty well. But that is, I believe, the one tackle that I missed. And if you ever catch a replay, I'm trying my best to get my left arm around his legs. And right as I'm pulling it in, he hops out and takes off, hits his turbo button, and he is gone down that uh, down the Buffs sideline for that touchdown. But again, fortunately, called back. What was the hill like after winning the national championship? Uh, well, bananas, as you would expect. But, you know, we, we didn't get a chance to really come back to campus. So most of the guys, you know, because because it was during Christmas break after the National Championship, most guys just went home from there. But I did have some guys who, uh, you know, went back to campus, didn't go home for whatever reason, and they told me it was absolutely bananas. Um, I didn't get a chance to experience it. I was back home in Pasadena, California. Interesting. And so what was your draft process like? Uh, the draft process. Um was interesting because I think a lot of teams didn't know where to, you know, where I was going to be a best fit within the NFL. Was I going to be an inside linebacker? Was I going to be an outside linebacker? I did both at uh, the University of Colorado. Um, and then obviously we, in Colorado, we were a 3-4 team and most of the teams in the NFL at that time were a 4-3 team. So uh, there was a bit of, you know, trying to figure out where I was going to fit. And then also um, I broke my hand uh, first practice of my senior year. I separated my shoulder twice during the season. So I was really unable to lift weights pretty much my entire senior year. And my combine performance, uh, let's just say from a strength perspective was a little lacking. Um, I did 11 on the 225 bench test. Um, <laughs> it just cracks me up to this day. I mean, I never was a just a weight room animal. But when I got 11, I actually jumped off of the bench, was excited because I got into double digits. I mean, that's how far my strength levels had gone down. So while I was stoked about the 11, I think the scouts were like, what is this guy excited about? I was like, man, I got the double digits. Good for me. Um, so those kind of factors, I think, uh, moved me down. I talked to a couple of scouts who were like, you know, you're a first round talent who's just not strong enough. And we just don't know where to picture you playing. Um, the morning of the draft, uh, my mother calls me, her best friend in San Francisco says, hey, Chad's on the front page of the newspaper out here, says they're gonna take Chad in the first round. Wow, mom, okay. Um, at, literally, maybe five minutes after hanging with my mom, Bill Cower calls and says, you know, Chad, we brought in um, Kevin Green just a couple of days ago. He's gonna play outside linebacker. Can you play inside linebacker? coach, I can punt if you want me to, you know, whatever you want me to do, I can do it. Um, so, okay, well, you know, good to know. We'll think about that. So the draft is ongoing. Uh, two of my CU teammates get drafted in the first round. Uh, I'm having, you know, I'm doing the draft at my agent's house. There's a couple of local papers and TV crews there after the first round is over. Um, I'm no longer going to be a first round guy. I'm a little you know, shy of being on camera at this point. I kind of go down to the basement, <laughs> deal with some of my disappointment about it all. Uh, agent calls me back up. He's like, you know, it's, it's heating up here in the second round. Something's going to happen soon. Anyway, the Washington Redskins call me and I'm on the phone with the Redskins. We're going to take you with the 45th pick. Um, I'm on the phone with them. Suddenly my agent answers the, the different phone. And he shoves the other phone into my face. I'm like, dude, I'm on the phone with the Redskins. They're like congratulating me. I'm about to be the 45th pick. It's like, no, it's the Steelers. They traded up to the 44th pick to get you. 
So we exchange phones. He gives the, the Redskins or the Washington football team their condolences, and I become a Pittsburgh Steeler. Washington finally did something right. They finally did something right. Snyder finally didn't come on off. Did you hear about this? He came. He, he was coming in off his yacht to make picks. Finally, yeah. he let somebody else take the pick, and Steelers went up and grabbed you. And then you, you brought him up. Can you talk about the late Kevin Green, just how amazing of a person he was? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've been blessed to play with some amazing teammates over the years, uh, whether they were just, you know, pretty good players and awesome people or Hall of Fame players. And uh, Kevin was certainly both. A Hall of Fame player who was sometimes who was somehow a, a better dude, and to be at the services with his family, and just kind of hear I knew these things about Kevin, but to hear them other people talk about some of these things, Kevin was in the National Guard. He jumped out of planes in the National Guard. So I mean that's enough for one lifetime for some people. He wrestled in the WWE, also enough for you know for one one person to have in a lifetime. Oh, he was undrafted. Uh, I'm sorry, he was uh, a walk-on at Auburn. You know, plays with Bo Jackson, ends up becoming an NFL player. That's enough for some people's life story. You know, gets drafted not in the first round, I think in the third or fourth round. Also becomes a Hall of Fame player in the NFL. So all those things coupled into a good old Southern dude who called your wife, ma'am, and, you know, would, would you know remember your kids' names and all that kind of stuff. And just was a wonderful teammate and mentor for me. Uh, he certainly will be missed. And, um, you know, just to look at what a, a life fully lived yeah. was about, I certainly was inspired. And I want to try to, you know, add some more notches to my belt as Kevin did. Yeah. So I have a question. So what made you decide to sign with the Seahawks? Um, I thought the Seahawks were going to be going in the right direction. Um, they, were, they were pretty much in agreement with Warren Moon that he was going to become their quarterback. I played against Warren. Um, as a Pittsburgh Steeler, I knew how difficult he was to deal with. Um, they were talking to my Steeler teammate, Willie Williams, who ended up signing as a free agent as well. So I thought they were building something pretty special out there. I knew the new stadium was a possibility. Paul Allen's ownership wasn't solidified at that point, but it was definitely going in the right direction. And I thought, hey, you can have the third or fourth wealthiest man in America own your team. That's going to make things a lot easier. Um, so Eventually, we were able to build a playoff team. And then the year after I left, they ended up going to the Super Bowl. I consider myself a big part of that building process. Um, but those are the reasons why. Um, did it hurt that, you know, they were uh, towards the top of the, the financial picture? Of course it didn't hurt. Um, the Steelers were in a bit of a, uh, an odd spot. They didn't have a lot of luxury suites in Old Three River Stadium. Um, so they didn't have a lot of extra money that other teams had. Um, the Steelers were also had also given Greg Lloyd a pretty good big contract the year before. Um, so they had a lot of money committed to the linebacker position. Um, LeVon Kirkland was going to be up. So they had, to, uh, you know, Jerome Bettis is, was going to be a free agent at the same time that I was. So it was all these pieces that were coming together that made it very difficult for them to, to re-sign me, at least at the dollar figure that I thought, you know, was going to, that I had earned due to my play. And also let's not forget that my, fourth year in Pittsburgh, the year before I went to Seattle, Greg Lloyd got hurt in the first game of the season against Jacksonville. I moved from inside linebacker to outside linebacker. Well, Greg Lloyd was coming back and they had drafted Jason Gilden two years before. So they had outside linebackers. So I was going to have to go from being an all pro, a pro bowler, some people's defensive player of the year. And then I got to move back to my old position. 
So it was just kind of a perfect storm of circumstances where it made it very difficult to go back to Pittsburgh. I have a question. Did you play with um, Lofa Tatupu in Seattle? Recurring guest of the show, Lofa Tatupu? Uh, I did not play with Lofa, but oh, he was the assistant linebacker coach when I did my earned, my internship there. Oh, cool. So I got a chance to spend about seven weeks with Lofa. Oh, cool. And I, got, I got one question from some Seahawks fans. Hypothetical. Prime Chad Brown meets prime Marshawn Lynch in the whole one-on-one. Who wins the collision? Ooh. Um, you know, Marshawn uh, has a maybe the best in the whole feet of any running back I, I've ever seen. Um, his ability to kind of chop down his strides, keep his base wide, have his power underneath him as he's going through the hole. Um, yeah, I, I think I would get him down, um, but he probably would fall forward. Let's put it that way. Just because, I mean, he's done that to everybody else. I don't think I'd be much different. I was talking to uh, Robert Turbin a couple weeks ago. I think Marshawn should be the next host of Jeopardy. <laughs> I think it'd be electric. I think he's the most likable personality that we've seen in a long time. Um, do you think Mike Holmgren should be a Hall of Famer? Oh, wow. Um, Super Bowl, obviously in Green Bay. Uh, Super Bowl loss in Seattle. Um, it's always so difficult to establish what are the, the true standards for the Hall of Fame. And they seem to change over time. And they're, you know, because some certain people get into the media, suddenly they're you know, opportunity gets better to get into the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, I talked to Steve Atwater and I have had the same age in our entire careers. Oh, cool. Steve knew that he had to join the media just to increase his chances for the Hall of Fame. It ended up working for him. Um, so I'm always a little dubious with, you know, some of these folks who may be on the, the, the border between very, very good and Hall of Fame. Um, I think Mike Holmgren was clearly a tremendous coach. Um, but having, you know, played for Bill Cower and for Bill Belichick, um, man, you know, Bill Cower gets in with one Super Bowl. Um, does Mike Holmgren deserve to get in with one? Does every coach who's got one Super Bowl trophy, does he deserve to get in? So what are we calling the standards and what, what makes you a true Hall of Famer as a coach? I can't say. I have a, I have a question. I saw somebody here. I saw you're a reptile guy. Is that true? You, this is true. Pets? Do you have any around that you could like put in the screen or are they in a different room? Is that, that was one of my uh, I, I, I don't, um, but this is my company. This is one of our flyers. This is Ship Your Reptiles. Um, and we ship reptiles for reptile breeders and producers all over the country. So uh, I contract with FedEx and I'm able to ship reptiles. Uh, and most weeks I do well over a thousand shipments wow. um, all across the country for reptile breeders. I myself don't necessarily handle the impact the animals. An example would be, you know, you're a reptile lover in Texas. I'm a reptile breeder in Colorado. You find me on Facebook and go, oh my goodness, Chad, those are the most amazing crested geckos I've ever seen. I got to buy them <laughs> from you. And I say, hey, let me get in contact with Ship Your Reptiles and I'll make sure I can get these shipped to you. And so Ship Your Reptiles handles that transaction in between. Chad packs up the animals, FedEx delivers them to you. You open up a box of perfectly packed uh, due to our customer service and packaging sales, um, animals are safely packed and they are delivered to you the next day. Do you have any like very, very often recurring customers that you can tell if you go into their house, like they've got everything? Um, yeah, I've got some customers who literally do, uh, you know, 25, 30 shipments uh, a, a day, uh, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, I mean, they're, they're not just a hobbyist, they're, oh, yeah. a, they're an animal business. That's um, 
Yeah, and I've got, uh, I do the same thing for the aquatics world. So ship your aquatics, for people who sell fish and corals and aquatic plants and things like that. And so I have some, some folks who do coral and you know you don't really breed coral. You grow it big and you cut it up and each version becomes like a clone of itself. Um, they, they, they frag coral, fragment coral and send those pieces of coral all over the country. I have some coral folks who do probably 50 or 60 shipments a day. How do you get involved with all that? Uh, I've always been an animal person. I've always enjoyed animals, uh, the interaction cool. with them. Uh, in fact, my childhood dream was to become a veterinarian. Oh, cool. um, you know, CU did not have a vet program, <laughs> nor did I think it was going to be really possible for me to be, you know, engaged in such a, you know, serious field of study while also trying to be a, you know, kick butt football player. Yeah. So I've got uh, two last questions for you. Um, who is the toughest guy to tackle in your whole career? Ah, uh, man. Um, Eddie George would be up there. Eddie, you know, was a really good sized running back, a little bit uh, tall, 6'4", 235. You know, I ran with high knees, you know, elbows forward. So you're like, where do I even begin on somebody like that? Um, Corey Dillon, when he was still young before he got to New England, and he had a great mix of power and speed. If you came soft, he ran you over. If you braced up for his power, he made a move and made you miss. So those are the more difficult guys. Um, played against Jerome a number of times. Um, so that was always, you know, difficult, you know, sometimes, but Jerome was almost like tackling a big pillow. You know, it didn't necessarily hurt, but it was just kind of hard getting your arms around it all. Um, but I would say probably the toughest uh, would just be Barry Sanders because Barry could just make you miss. And if you were not perfectly aligned defensively, he could take that one misaligned guy, even if you're just a foot misaligned, and next thing you know, it's like, oh man, there's Barry down the sideline for 65 yards. So he would be the toughest. And my final question is, who do you think is the most underrated defensive player in the NFL today? Underrated defensive player in the NFL today? Whew, man, um, that's a tough one. Uh, I did an internship with the 49ers uh, a couple years back and having all those first round picks in that defensive line room. And that was the room that I worked with five first rounders in that room was an incredible, uh, you know, talented group. And, you know, I had not had a lot of experience watching DeForest Buckner, um, but he's the real deal. And I think, you know, people will know about it. Obviously Aaron Donald takes a lot of that defensive tackle glory and shine as he should. You know, Aaron Donald, I think is, you know, so far of everybody else at his position, um, it's not even laughable, but DeForest Buckner is a guy I think who does not get the credit that he deserves. Um, he's a special player on the inside of anyone's defense. Do you think San Fran is regretting trading him for that first? Um, you know, when you have that many first round picks in the room, you, you've got to pick and choose. Uh, and I'm sure there's some regret, but the regret, you know, I think uh, for John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan, they can put their heads on the pillow comfortably at night knowing that they were up against so many other issues. Salary cap, you know, you got five first rounders in the room. Well, how, you can't keep them all. You can't pay everybody. You got other pieces of your team you need to build up. So I think it was just the looking around, you know, what do we do? Who's a guy who can bring us the most value back if we were to lose them? And I think that's how that decision was made. Do you think a similar situation is going to happen in Washington in the near future, knowing they chose four defensive linemen in the first round? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, you know, because the, the, not only are you a first rounder, 
um, and you've, you've been paying this guy big money. But when the money comes in from the next contract, part of being the first rounder is you typically get a little bit more on the second contract as well. So uh, that makes it almost an untenable situation for the Washington football team. They've got to find a way to do similar to what the 49ers did, maybe get rid of one of those pieces and get rid of, probably not the right word, move one of those pieces for what they can get the maximum value back for. Would, would you think a team trading more than two first for Deshaun Watson is a bad move? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Um, what the Lions got for Matt Stafford, you know, I think that's the where the conversation starts for Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson is obviously younger, um, a better athlete, um, gives you a different skill set as an offense. I mean, he literally can be your quarterback for the next 10 years. So uh, the Matt Stafford is a little bit, of a little bit more of a short-term rental. Not everybody's going to be Tom Brady playing into their 40s. Uh, but Deshaun Watson, again, I think you can kind of book him under center at least for the next eight years. Uh, the, the longer window that you have him makes that value of those two first-round picks uh, pretty equal for me. Absolutely, absolutely. That, that's really all the questions I really have for you. Um, how can people find you on social media? Uh, obviously, find your business. Kind of, I'll, I'll put a link to that when I post it, but just kind of just keep up with you and everything that's going on with you. Uh, you can always find me on Twitter at Chad Brown 94. Um, I'm in the midst of uh, kind of re uh, formatting my, my social media presence. I'll be doing a podcast oh, cool. uh, that will be football based called a little knowledge is dangerous, um, which is a, a line from a uh, Eric B and rock Kim song, but I think applies to football in great ways. I'll be doing the animal podcast as well called living arts. And based on those podcasts, I'll be really pushing all that stuff to some new media platforms. But uh, for now, Chad Brown 94 on Twitter.